Hello and welcome to Oberta Dicta, a podcast by Bloomsbury Professional Ireland. Each episode, we interview one of Ireland's leading legal professionals on their areas of interest and expertise and how these are informing our current headlines. We also deliver a summary of Bloomsbury Professional Ireland's latest updates across its online services and blog. Your hosts for this podcast are myself, Rachel Sherlock, the Marketing Executive for Bloomsbury Professional Ireland and General Literature Enthusiast. And me, Owen Malloy, a graduate of NUI Galway School of Law and FE1 survivor. I now work as Bloomsbury Professional Ireland's Content Editor, with a particular focus on our online services. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy our podcast. Hello and welcome back to episode 9 of Obiter Dicta. My name is Rachel Sherlock and as always I'm joined by my co-host Owen Malloy. On today's podcast we are continuing on with the theme of coronavirus and the law. We are bringing you a conversation that we had last week with Dr Ronan Kennedy, lecturer at NUI Galway. Ronan spoke to us about the potential for interaction between COVID-19 and data protection by discussing some of the technological innovations which have been used to battle the pandemic. We also discussed how the planned contact tracing app will have to conform with the existing data protection law and why we must remain wary of what Ronan calls mission creep. And just before we get to the interview, we would like to announce that if any of our listeners are interested in finding further reading on data protection generally, we would suggest picking up a copy of Michael O'Doherty's recently published Internet Law, which is also available via our ITIP service. Thanks, and we hope you enjoy the interview. You're very welcome to the show, Ronan. We are delighted to have you. As our listeners will know, you've been the author of several articles on the Bloomsbury Professional Ireland blog, mainly focused around data protection. So your most recent article focused on the particular data protection issues which may arise in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic. It's a very interesting article indeed. But before we get into that, perhaps it would be better to give our listeners a bit of introduction into yourself and the work that you do. Thanks, Owen, and thanks for having me on the podcast. So as you know, I teach in the law school at NUI Galway, teach a range of different subjects. Some are introductory courses on the legal system and legal research and writing, but I also teach specialized courses on information technology law and environmental law. And my research tends to focus on those latter two areas, and I'm particularly interested in the intersection between them. Um, But more recently, I've started to work on the use of technology for legal practice, which is something that people often call law tech. And in the present context, I because I worked as a researcher in the Chief Justice's office for a number of years, I'm looking very closely at what, how the courts are beginning to move online in response to the pandemic. Uh, I think that raises a lot of interesting questions that we'll be dealing with in years to come. Uh, that's really fascinating and, and kind of developing area. So the, the latest blog that you had on our website, the article was titled uh, data protection and COVID-19, short-term priorities, long-term consequences. And it's a great read. If anyone hasn't yet read it, we would recommend maybe pausing here and clicking the link in the description to go read it so you can follow along. But to begin, I guess you started the article by highlighting the sobering fact that the myth that science and engineering can subdue the natural world has been punctured. Is it fair to say then that you believe that our decision to turn to the proverbial technological toolbox for quick solutions is kind of misguided? I think it's misguided for quick solutions, and I think it's misguided for sole solutions. But I do think that technology, information technology, applications like uh, contract tracing, which is something that's getting a lot of attention at the moment, I think they're likely to be very important aspects of our response to the pandemic. 
And I think it's important to remember that ICT can give us a capacity to scale up responses in a way that really are very, very difficult or impossible to deliver just by people on their own. And we're going to need that kind of large-scale capacity in the future. So I'm not opposed to the use of technology just to its inappropriate use or uh, the expectation that it can solve all of our problems overnight. Yes, obviously, maybe we have kind of been lulled into the sense that technology is, you know, all powerful and it can be used, you know, to to solve something as as basic as a, a natural consequence, like like a coronavirus pandemic. So I suppose high quality and detailed data it is required to tackle a pandemic in terms of identifying and isolating clusters of infected persons. So would you have any particular privacy concerns with contact tracing and the way it's been deployed at present? I think the idea of contact tracing, as I said, could be very useful, but it does raise some very significant privacy concerns and they're absolutely being debated at the moment, which is which is very useful and, and, and necessary. I think that one of the first questions that needs to be considered is whether or not this sort of a system is centralized or decentralized. If it's going to be centralized, who has access to that data uh, and what it's being, what's it being used for now, what it might be used for in, in the future. One of the things that data protection and privacy experts will worry about quite a lot is what's sometimes called uh, mission creep or function creep. That information is gathered for one purpose um, and that might be quite a legitimate purpose at that point in time, but there's always the temptation to then go, well, we can use that information for this other thing over here, which wasn't originally part of our purpose. There maybe isn't a legitimate purpose actually, but you know, nobody's going to know, or we'll just carry on doing it until someone tells us to stop. I, I'm not saying that that's happening in any particular example now, but these are things that we need to keep an eye on. I think it's particularly important to understand that Every application like this means that there's an awful lot more that the government or that business may know about you, and we need to keep an eye on what they might do with that. And there are examples from around the world where we've seen that these already uh, these the, these types of efforts to track uh, people's movements and who they've come in contact with, so that we can um, find clusters of infection, have actually caused problems. A recent example from. New Zealand, where a customer uh, ordering, I think it was takeaway or, or takeout food, provided uh, the restaurant with information under their the New Zealand contact tracing system and uh, was later, then later contacted by an employee of that restaurant basically wanting to go out on a date with her. So that's, that, that's sort of a micro example of what can happen when you're providing information that you wouldn't otherwise provide. But we've also seen uh, in South Korea, there's been South Korea has the, the pandemic under relatively good control, I think, partly because it engages in an awful lot of uh, contact tracing. Uh, and there has been the beginnings of a second wave, maybe another outbreak there. And one of the things that's a cause for concern is that it seems that some of the infections, that one of the major clusters there was in gay bars in a parts of the city where which were known to be uh, to have gay bars in them. And obviously, that then could possibly reveal something about your sexual orientation if you're being followed up with uh, as, as part of that contact tracing. And South Korea is not a terribly gay-friendly country as far as I can make out. So that might be information you really actually want to keep to yourself very much, who you associate with or, or where you're going. There's a lot of reasons why you might want to keep that information from the government. Absolutely. And just um, if I could bring you back to one point that maybe some of our listeners and maybe some of our hosts might not understand just the difference between centralized versus decentralized that you mentioned earlier on in your answer there. 
Yeah, sorry, I should have explained that a little bit better. So there are uh, many technologists, uh, all of whom are much more clever than I, who've done a lot of work on this sort of thing. And it is possible to develop systems which will allow for a follow-up with people with whom I have come in contact with or somebody else has come in contact with without actually keeping any kind of central record of who those people are um, or, or, or of my movements. Centralization is in a lot of ways easier and simpler because you you keep tabs of you know where everybody's moving or whose phones they come near to but that as i say means that the government has that uh, all that information in one place and might then use it for illegitimate purposes as far as i understand a lot of decentralized systems essentially operate by having individual mobile phones basically broadcast random words and then everybody else's phone listens for those random words if somebody uh, turns up with a positive um, diagnosis, you can then basically send out an alert saying any phone that has heard this random word has come close to a person who has a positive diagnosis. But nobody knows, they don't know who that person is. They just know you came close to a phone that which was being used by someone who has then later been, been positively diagnosed. Wow, that's really fascinating. I genuinely had, had no idea about that. That's certainly a new way of looking at it from my eyes. Because when you were speaking, I was definitely thinking when you're talking about mission creep and and the desire maybe that might grow to, to hold on to information that was originally set to be kind of um, destroyed once it was used. But I guess, especially when you're dealing with something as emotionally fraught as a, as a pandemic, as disease and, and mortality, there, there'll always be parts of the population that are more anxious for that information to be stored and used in the future and other parts that um, will be much more resistant. I think we all have different uh, preferences and priorities in terms of privacy and in, and they may operate in different contexts as well um, for different people. So one of the things that I mentioned in, in the blog post is that one of the basic principles of data protection is data minimization. You basically don't gather the information unless you need it. And therefore, people have sat down and, and thought about how can we develop a system which allows us to identify who such and such person has come into close contact with. Uh, without actually keeping a record of who those people are. And it's difficult and challenging, but it is technologically possible to do it. And in terms of the the contact tracing apps that are being worked on by the government and, and what you know about them, are you familiar with the current status of this app? Or you, you touched on it briefly in, in the blog post. Yeah, so I've been trying to keep up with it since the blog post was published. The information is in the public domain isn't uh, uh, complete at the moment. Uh, I, I think, like a lot of things, it's a it's a developing story. The government seems to be regarding contact tracing as very important uh, as part of their strategy for reopening the country. They seem to be downgrading that recently. But I'm quite pleased to see uh, that in the last few days they have committed to making the application as open as they can, uh, publishing the source code of the application, which means that basically ordinary people can look and see. Well, does this actually do what it says on the tin? You can look under the hood of the of the application, uh, and they'll also publish a, a data protection impact assessment, a DPIA, um, which is something that's required to be produced under the general data protection regulation, but not required to be published. So that's a good step forward in terms of transparency. Um, but as I say, the information is still uh, incomplete. I, I think that um, the Irish government are learning from experience internationally changing their approach. The UK have rolled out a pilot of a similar app and they haven't been as transparent as the Irish government is is proposing to be. And it does seem that they're losing the trust of the population there somewhat. Whereas Germany 
has committed to open sourcing its app and should be posting uh, technical details in the next few days, I think. They all seem to be better approaches. The key thing with this sort of system fundamentally is trust. Unless you're going to require people to install the app, which is really difficult to uh, implement, uh, and in fact may be in practice impossible, India has gone down this road and now seems to be backtracking from making their contact tracing app mandatory. Um, you need people to be feel confident that they can use it and the government isn't going to be doing on, anything untoward with it. Experts in this field say that you need somewhere in the region of 60% of the population to actually be using the app in order for it really to be useful. So if you don't have trust, you won't get reached that level. Um, and therefore, the app is, is possibly a very expensive white elephant. So we'll, we'll have to wait and see, I suppose. There is a solicitor who's an expert in this area, Simon McGar. One of the things that he's said a number of times is that contact tracing is fundamentally a social project and not a technological one. I think it's something that's easy to, to lose track of. You know, when you talked about quick solutions at the beginning, that's this idea that the solution to this is technological. But really, it's a social one. People are unpredictable. People are sometimes contrary. People are sometimes irrational. And if they just don't trust that the app is something that they can confidently use and that, that, that their data is safe and secure and won't be repurposed for something else later, they may just go, no, I'm just not going to do this. So more openness, I think, is, is really to be welcomed. That's really, really, really very interesting um, to hear. So it, it kind of follows into another area that, that we wanted to discuss about um, the second myth that you mentioned in the post. So this idea of complete discontinuity. Mm -hmm. um, so basically, this is the idea that the old rules don't apply. So we, we've seen it in data protection, you know, this idea that, you know, oh, we're in a, a pandemic now. So maybe should GDPR still apply as, as it previously did in pre-pandemic times? Mm -hmm. And and what is your, your view of that? Should the GDPR still be enforced as it, as it was? Well, I think, first of all, as a matter of law and as fact, it does. So that has to be the initial starting point. That doesn't mean that one can't reassess it or perhaps think about whether or not it needs to be amended. Nothing's perfect. But I, I think particularly in the early weeks of the pandemic, there was a lot of uh, talk around how everything has completely changed and we'll never go back to the way that we were and so on. I, I see less of that discussion now as we've sort of adjusted. And I suspect that that's actually going to fade away relatively quickly if we do emerge out of this into some sort of normal. Now, there's talk of this situation continuing possibly for years, and I think that could be the case as well. And I think that there probably will be some changes in the long term. But, you know, we've had pandemics and, and some very lethal pandemics in the past don't seem to have made an awful lot of difference. The 1917-18 flu pandemic is one that actually a lot of people didn't even know about. It, it, it sort of faded out of the history books. So, you know, that's a that's a longer question. I, maybe we talk about that in a year or two's time as to what what the long term implications are. But in terms of the immediate uh, context, the existing laws still continue to apply entirely. Of course. And I think there was I think the people who don't like data protection, I think don't like the GDPR, the people who just like to to make grand statements. And there was a theme that I saw in some of the commentary, which is that the GDPR can't accommodate the need to deal with this sort of public health emergency. That it's uh, already been outdated by what's happening. But the reality is that negotiation process and the drafting process for the GDPR already considered public health emergencies and had already dealt with this kind of situation. So there is provision for the processing of data in public health contexts if that's if that's required. And there are also tools built into the GDPR, one of which I've already mentioned, the DPIA, the Data Protection Impact Assessment but also ideas like data protection by default and data protection by design, 
which are intended to make sure that technologists um, and decision makers, uh, policymakers, politicians, and so on, are thinking about data protection from the outset when they develop these new projects. So if the GDPR is worked with in a constructive way, it can actually be a support rather than a hindrance. It doesn't prevent innovation. It doesn't stop the development of tools that deal with this. It just means that there has to be consideration for the need for privacy and, and for a balancing exercise if that has to happen. Now, the, the balancing is already built into the GDPR. Uh, and I think that's very important because of what I talked about a little while ago, which is the question of trust. Ultimately, if you don't have trust, uh, and if government or public health officials or anyone else begin to lose their legitimacy because they're seen as overreaching from a privacy context, it will actually undermine the sort of centralized effort that does need uh, to take place. So I, I think this idea of discontinuity and, and everything changing uh, overnight really is overblown. Yeah, I think that's a, a really great point. And I think it leads us into maybe a kind of look at the public's experience of, of, of being encountered with these initiatives. So like you mentioned in your article, the Irish public have been fairly understanding and compliant with all of these measures that have been brought in to combat the, the spread of coronavirus. And this has all kind of happened with relatively little debate. Do you think that there may be more pushback and, and scrutiny on these kinds of initiatives as lockdown fatigue sets in? I think that absolutely. Um, I think that's already underway to a certain extent. There's obviously media commentary and debate as to how long these lockdown measures should continue and how and when they should be uh, gradually relaxed. There's an Oireachtas committee uh, beginning to sit uh, literally today as we're recording this. So yes, there is pushback and scrutiny, and I think that that's not a bad thing. I think constructive criticism is always helpful. We are dealing with a situation that is unprecedented really, certainly for anybody living and anybody who's making decisions, they haven't had to deal with these kind of situations before. So nobody has all the answers. And the more that the proposals that are put forward are subject to good, useful, constructive scrutiny, and the more other ideas can be put on the table, and perhaps there's an opportunity for people to rethink ideas that turn out not to be uh, so good. Uh, I think that's all public benefit in the long term. The measures that we put in place now to deal with the immediate situation may be there for quite a long time. It's very difficult to re-engineer a system once it's up and running, whether it's a technological system, software, online tools, whatever, or some sort of human system. So it's important that we get things right first time. I think that one of the best ways of doing that is to have good, robust debate. As we're moving towards more and more people returning to workplaces, I think this issue will increase. Do you see any kind of issues arising about temperature monitoring of employees or using productivity measuring software to check that people who are working from home are genuinely working from home? Um, are there kind of side issues of, of privacy here as well? Uh, yeah, there are. I think that certainly companies are already beginning to deploy surveillance in the the, the extended workplace, we might call it, the, the, the working at home context, or also in, in factories and places like that where it's unavoidable that people come together in large numbers and, and often have to work at uh, close quarters. Um, that might be okay. It might be problematic. Um, there isn't really an easy way to say whether or not um, these approaches are legitimate or legal. Um, it depends on how and why they're uh, being done. Um, if, for example, you're recording or you're you're taking temperatures from from staff, is that being recorded somewhere? Why is it being recorded? What's being done with it afterward? If you're monitoring what employees are doing when they're working from home, 
what again what are you doing with that kind of data how sensitive is the time measurement are you punishing people when they seem not to be working you know there may be good reason why you want to make sure that somebody is sitting at their desk or sitting at their computer i suppose and making calls or whatever it is that they're supposed to be doing but if you're making some sort of automatic decisions on that basis you're saying well you are away from your desk for more than 15 minutes today so therefore we're going to reduce your wages by such and such an amount that might not be legitimate so it really does depend on on exactly what is being what what is what is happening and at the moment there's uh, again as we're recording there's a controversy about complaints to the data protection commission about employers being provided with test results before their workers I don't want to get into the details of that I suppose it's it's a it's an ongoing story there could be a justification for doing that like uh, protecting the safety of other workers but it also seems uh, sensible and it, this I think is the line of the DPC that the employees should be the first to know about their own health uh, situation so I'm not saying it's necessarily wrong but just that every step that um, businesses are taking now to introduce new measures to safeguard the health of their employees or to ensure that employees are remaining uh, productive do need to be carefully considered and justified. And again, the GDPR does actually contain mechanisms to ensure that people can go through that process. So it's a, it's a very difficult bal- balancing act by all accounts. Um, I think you've left us with an awful lot of food for thought there on, on the data protection aspect of coronavirus. So it would be brilliant if we could move on to your experience of remote teaching and remote assessment as a lecturer. So last time out on the podcast, we had Kate Flood, who's a second year student of law at Trinity College Dublin. And she said that while her experience of taking exams online, you know, wasn't too bad. It was arguably less stressful for her. She still believes that on-campus learning is more immersive and beneficial for students. Um, what would be your thoughts on that? And, and how is your experience overall? I think that overall, she is probably right. I think people are generally much more receptive to learning face-to-face than in small groups. The, the ideal would be one one student and one lecturer or one teacher. But obviously, in the modern university context, that you run up against all kinds of resource constraints with that. That's a very expensive model for, for teaching. The universities and, and schools and, and, and other educational establishments, I suppose, had to very rapidly uh, switch to some sort of online delivery, online teaching. Uh, over the past month because they really had no choice. And I think successes, there have been successes with that. I think some positive stories, I think in other ways it's been mixed and that's just been about the, the emergency nature of the response. But in terms of the broader question of online and remote teaching and, and how well that works or doesn't work, I think it can be as good or better than some face-to-face classes in my experience. Like, as I said at the beginning, it, you know, the technology is not necessarily a, a, a complete solution or a quick solution. An awful lot depends on how it's done and how it's implemented. If all that's happening is simply recording a, a bunch of lectures, um, you know, with the static camera and putting them up and continuing with everything else as is, I think that's actually uh, probably going to be quite disengaging for students. I don't know how interesting my regular lectures are, but I'd say I'm much more boring if you're just watching me on a computer screen. It, so it requires you know, a different approach. It requires maybe more uh, bite-sized uh, pieces. It requires more exercises and activities to engage the students' attention and make sure they're learning as they go along so they don't switch off or, or drift. I have taught uh, online classes. I've, I've taught complete uh, modules online and have had the interesting experience of teaching more or less the same content, the same course to face-to-face class 
and to an online class at the same time. And in my experience, the online remote students learned as well or better as the face-to-face students. Now, there are other differences between them. The, the face-to-face class were much younger, whereas the distance education students were much older. Uh, they were doing this as part of an overall career development um, goal or something like that. So they had very different motivations and they had much more life experience to bring. So whether or not that experience would replicate if you're dealing with you know, first or second year undergraduates who, who don't necessarily have that same immediate need or want to, to get stuck into the material, I'm not sure. But I think the real question that we have to think about uh, over the summer months between now and, and August, September, October, when as schools and universities get ready to go back, because this isn't just an issue for third level. This is an issue for second level and it's an issue for primary schools as well. Um, I'm not sure how well we're going to be able to get everybody back into a classroom in September. And I think we also need to be ready to be able to switch back relatively quickly if there's a second wave of infections, for example, as part of this pandemic. So I think the thing that really needs some attention and and therefore resources, I suppose, is that lecturers and teachers are going to need to upskill significantly in this type of, of digital teaching before the next academic year, because it is a different approach. It requires a different set of skills and experience. And we may need to make the best of what is a terrible situation in in many ways uh, and to uh, get good at it. I think the other thing that probably needs a bit of attention between now and then is that if we are going to be delivering more and more online, um, then it really raises issues around what's sometimes called the digital divide. And I have certainly heard this from uh, my students and from others, and and, uh, I'm aware of it in a lot of different contexts, that you now have households which have one computer, maybe two computers, X number of devices, which are now in demand because you have three or four people in that house, as I say, all the way from primary up to third level, uh, who need to get online at the same time in order to be able to do their coursework. And we also don't have uh, easy access to broadband uh, nationally all across the country. It's relatively good, obviously, in, in the urban areas. But as you move out into rural Ireland, people just don't have good broadband. So it's going to be difficult for them to get online for classes that are taking place at the same time and if they are just you know accessing video recordings uh, even that may actually be problematic uh, and difficult and Kate particularly talked about her experience of doing exams and how they had dry runs and so on I thought that was very good that 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 was done because this can really be a problem when it comes to timed assessment of one sort or another Um, I did have to run a few of those at the end of, of the academic year here, because we um, we switched to online before teaching had actually finished, and I had exercises that students would normally have done in class. So they, they did them online, and they did them under, I gave them a little bit of extra time, but they did them in the same time slot as if they would have been in class. And I had students who contacted me afterwards to say they were unable to upload in time because broadband didn't work, or this, this thing broke down, or the other thing broke down as they were doing it. And, I was forgiving in that particular context. Uh, I think everyone was doing the best that they could in a, in a difficult situation. But we, we can't just assume that uh, everyone has the same access to technology and devices and to, uh, and to broadband. And that's going to be a difficult problem to fix between now and the, and the next academic year. Yeah, I think that there's a huge range of things that will need reflecting. And I'm sure in some ways, September can feel a little bit far away, but I expect it, it'll come around very quickly as well for such a massive change. Mm-hmm. 
I think the universities are already beginning to think about it. We're certainly we're talking about it within the law school and, and within NUI Galway. I, I'm sure that everywhere else uh, in Ireland and, and worldwide are, are actually working on this. But as with so many of these things, there are no, no quick fixes. We can't just turn to the technological toolbox. It's not as simple as that. <laughs> well, listen, thanks very much for, for coming along to, to talk to us. It's, it's definitely given us a fascinating insight into coronavirus and data protection, and I'm sure our listeners will agree. Um, so thank you very much for taking the time. You're welcome. Thanks, and we'll look forward to talking to you again. Thank you. This has been Oberta Dicta, a Bloomsbury Professional Ireland podcast. To find out more about our titles and online services, visit bloomsburyprofessionalireland.com. You can follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook. Thanks for listening.